Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Davy Johnstone, A Melting Snow, from his new album, Deeper Than My Roots. Many of you will be familiar with Davy for his work for over 50 years with Elton John as his guitarist, but also other artists, and he's got a fine new album out. A huge welcome, Davy. Hey, man, how you doing? First of all, I just have to congratulate you on a, a fabulous solo album. I've, I've been listening to it over the past week, and... 
you must be so pleased how it turned out. Actually, Bob, thank you so much for that. But yeah, I really am. It's um, it's unusual actually for me to enjoy and embrace something that I've just done. Usually, I'm picking holes in it and and kind of saying, "Oh, that could have been different, and that should have been better." But the way this record seemed to happen was just so natural that it just all flowed the way. And any accidents that that were on there during recording, I just left them on because they felt good. You know, they were happy, happy mistakes, if you like. And um, so it's a very organic sounding record, I think. Yeah. And many people have already heard yeah. one of the advanced uh, tracks, Melting Snow. And um, that's your youngest son on vocals, isn't it? I mean, that's a, it's a great voice he's got. Yeah, he has got a great voice. I kind of stole him while we were in in uh, in isolation, you know, in lockdown. And because um, it started probably summer of 2020 after i've been home for a couple of months from australia uh when the you know the the elton farewell tour got got ceremoniously dumped you know right in, yeah. right in the middle of it so you know that's fine i realized okay maybe i've got time for myself so elliot has a great voice and, and um he was 15 at the time that i asked him to to maybe wow. sing a couple of songs and, and just you know it wasn't planned uh, nothing was planned about making an album at that point it was just really let's have some fun and you know we're doing anything right now so let's record a couple of things so we recorded here there and everywhere because it's a, I'm a huge Beatles fan and and he loves the Beatles too and all my kids in fact have been brought up with the Beatles so so they were kind of press guide into it but yeah Elliot immediately we started doing his vocal to the things that I was writing it became pretty obvious that this is the the kind of path I want to take for the record. You know, I would play all the instruments and arrange everything, do all the backgrounds and all the rest of it. And he would sing lead on most of it. So it's worked out really, really well. Absolutely. And there's quite a lot of tracks to pick out. I mean, uh, One Look in Your Eyes, it's got that sort of classic, classic rock right. feel as well. Yeah, it's got that kind of kink. I kept thinking it sounded a bit like the kinks when I was doing it. And I don't mind that at all. It's like, this is great. You know, I'm, I'm drawing from my past and, um, you know, all those bands in the, in the 70s, well, sorry, in the 60s that I was listening when I was like 10, 11 years old and just starting to play guitar. You know, those are the guys that I, that, that I listened to and worshipped and still do in many ways. And, um, I mean, George Harrison, um, as far as I, a guitar player who plays exactly the right thing at the right time, I don't think there's any be- anybody better than George. And so I, I kind of modeled myself on the way that he uh, structured his parts for songs so that the song spoke the loudest and the guitar parts were great, but they didn't detract. So I always tried to do that with Elton as well. Telling lies to me 
So is that one of the reasons why the title, uh, Deeper Than My Roots, is that you're reconnecting with some of those influences? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, all the way across the, the board, um, there's some incredible string band influences from, again, from my youth, some uh, Dubliners and, and Chieftains, but, you know, the Celtic, because I never really lost sight of my my Celtic roots uh, being uh, from Edinburgh. But the thing is, I left Edinburgh when I was 17. I was just a babe when I left there. So I really hadn't seen as much of Scotland as I would have loved to have seen. And it's on my bucket list, uh, you know, when we're done with all this touring with Elton, uh, that I'll spend a couple of years going uh, in and above the Highlands and the Orkney Islands and Shetlands and stuff like that. But yeah, all of those, this album is really about my my roots, definitely. And actually, the album cover as well, the artwork uh, that my daughter has done so brilliantly, um, I explained to her what it was I wanted. I wanted a cross between Sergeant Pepper and the Incredible String Band. And with some whimsy in there and some interesting stuff and stuff that where people would have to look at it and really take it all in. Because I think album artwork has gotten very boring in the last, well, because we, we don't have albums anymore. We basically everything's online and there's the occasional CD. But I'm, um, you know, we're going to do a vinyl release of this record sometime in the late spring. I think it's going to be April, March or April, where you'll really see the full, uh, you know, the full extent of the of the album artwork, which is great. Yeah, because you can just appreciate the album even more in that. I was going to say as well, you know, you, re- you refer to Scotland, your roots there, but you, I've read growing up you were exposed to standards and folk music through your family. Is that correct? Um, kind of. Um, I, I was kind of a sponge for everything that was going on. I mean, ever since I was five years old and, and my sisters were playing their records and my sisters are 10 and 11 and 12 years older than me respectively so they were listening to Elvis and Buddy Holly and Little Richard and I would hear those those 78s the big giant you know breakable yeah. 78s when I was five years old so I I was totally attracted to it at an early age and all the way through my growing up occasionally my my parents would invite um there was a great singer called Ted Warwick and he used to just a brilliant singer of Scottish ballads and they would come over to the house and we had an upright piano and, and Ted's wife would accompany him and he would sing all those amazing uh, folk standards and like Robert Burns stuff, um, Aphon Kiss and, and Bonnie Weething and My Love Is Like a Red Red Rose and all these amazing Robert Burns songs that I, I again grew up in, with and then you know, picking up all the brilliant Scottish folk singers that are out there. I mean, everybody from from Bert Yanch and John Renborn yeah. to Sandy Denny and the Fairport Convention and um, Archie Fisher and people like that who were part of the folk revival, which was huge in the in the uh, mid sixties you know, to early seventies. So that was really where I based all my musicianship on, and I would learn to play kind of intricate finger picking styles and stuff that no rock not many rock and roll guys were doing. You know, ironically, the first person that, that I really noticed picking it up uh, and using it in that way, uh, there was two people. One was John Lennon, right. who later on I got to work with, which was wonderful. And I was amazed that he was actually using the same finger-picking style that I've been using for years. He was using it on the White Album and Abbey Road and all these great albums. And I was always wondered where he learned it from. He actually learned it from Donovan. Uh. Um, Donovan was, you know, the folk singer who's also from Edinburgh. Yeah. 
And he was attached to that whole uh, hippie scene back in the mid 60s. And um, he taught a lot of people, you know, th that rolling style of picking guitar. And um, there was another person that was going, oh, yeah, Jimmy Page. Mm. Jimmy was playing that same style of acoustic guitar picking quite early in his career. And, and so, you know, I, I realized that, okay, I'm in a very special small club here because as I said, not too many people play that style of, of kind of folk-based picking. It's it's about 48 years since your debut album and, and listening back to some of that material, like a, a lark in the morning, you, you can hear some of that folk coming through even, well, especially then. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I still love that kind of music. In fact, about five years ago, I guess, um, a friend of mine, uh, Hans Zimmer, who's a music composer for movies, um, Hans wanted me to play on the Sherlock Holmes movie he was doing with Guy Ritchie. And so they brought me in. And I didn't know this, but, but Guy Ritchie is a huge fan of, of traditional uh, Irish and Scottish pub music, which usually features tenor banjo and pipes and fiddles and stuff like that so i was i was the guy for the gig you know uh so hans knew that i played all that stuff so i really enjoyed doing that and i was quite featured in that movie actually and uh, the music was nominated for an oscar and um so yeah those kinds of things are really fun for me and i actually wouldn't get to do those things if i hadn't had such a a wealth of experience growing up and doing folk music and blues and then eventually rock stuff. Um, so I've never really lost sight of my roots in that way.
can hear what sounds like a sitar at the end of uh, Black Scotland. And if I'm right, you were you were playing that with uh, Magna Carta as well. You know, uh, give me no goodbyes. You've also got that sitar. Yeah, it, this was something that I. There's a very famous Scottish folk singer called Archie Fisher, who I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's like a legend among Scottish uh, and and UK people. Uh, Archie's brilliant. I actually called him up last year and I went to his apartment. This is when I was a young 15 year old, you know, wannabe folk guy. And I was getting some attention because of my banjo style and stuff. So somebody took me over to Archie's house and he was sitting on a Oriental rug surrounded by joysticks and incense and all that, playing the sitar. I was instantly hooked. It was like, I saw this and it was like, I want to do that. Because I've always been like a real fiend for stringed instruments and anything different I want to play. So um, right there and then, I decided I would get my own sitar. So about a year later, I saw an ad in some Indian magazine when I was living in London with uh, my friend Noel Murphy, another great folk singer. And I ordered a sitar from from Bombay. Wow. <laughs> it was a hundred pounds and I, I scraped together the money because I didn't have any money in those days at all. You know, I was like living on porridge and Guinness in those days. That was my diet to stay alive. And um, about six months later, this, this um, giant crate arrived. It was like a coffin, you know, it was that size. And um, there was my sitar. And I have that same sitar to this day. And it's the one that was on all the Magna Carta stuff. Um, very many Elton songs over the years, like Lucy in the Sky and, and um, Holiday Inn and stuff like that. Blues for Baby and Me. I've used it a lot um, for effect. And also, I, like you mentioned, on uh, Black Scotland, it's really effective there. From Magna Carta, it was uh, Gus Dudgeon, he was the link that eventually brought you to Elton and, and Madman. He sure was. And um, yeah, I'm so great you've done your homework. I really appreciate that, Jason. <laughs> you know a bit about what I've done. But no, Gus was uh, entirely important, the main link, in fact, in my career. Because when I went down to London, um, Gus was one of the few producers who was willing to listen to young crazy people like me with all the ideas I had well, you know and I would talk to him about about um, the bands that were suddenly be- the folk bands that were turning electric yeah. like Fairport yeah. or Fothering Gay or Magna Carta and as it happened because he worked with Magna Carta you know he said well you know you're working with Magnus why don't you play on their next album and I'll be producing it and it was like great so after we'd known each other for about a year, he mentioned this young guy he was working with called Reg. And he kept talking about this guy, Reg, and, and uh, oh, Reg is writing some great stuff and he's getting some attention in America. And then one day he said, look, I've got this, this album we're doing with Reg and it's called Madman Across the Water and we can't find the right guitar part. Would you like to try it? And I was like, sure, you know. And I had no idea who he was, didn't know him from Adam. So I showed up at the studio and uh, met this very nervous little guy behind a piano called Reg. And uh, we immediately hit it off. And, and um, yeah, I played guitar on Madman Across the Water. And then I played mandolin and sitar on uh, Holiday Inn. And we became instant friends musically. We And, you know, the next week I got a call asking if I'd like to join him. And um, it was like, sure, I'll do that. Was it Honky Chateau where you were kind of fully incorporated in the band? Is that right? Yes, it was. And that's exactly 50 years ago this month, in fact. 
January uh, 1972, we all got on a plane at London Heathrow Airport and off we went to, to France and uh, to the Chateau d'Auville and uh, we made Honky Chateau. We made the album in about two and a half weeks. It was very quick. We just sat in a semicircle, uh, rehearsed the songs as Elton and Bernie were writing them because it was all done on the spot. I mean, nothing was done before we went to the Chateau. And um, so in the first few days, he was writing things like Rocket Man and Honky Cat, and we would go straight to the studio and record them. And um, as I said, it was only myself, Elton, uh, Dee Murray and Nigel Olsen. That was it. We were the only guys um, who made up the band. Uh, so it was a real departure for Elton because up to then he'd been, uh, you know, Paul Buckmaster um, had been arranging all the stuff and they'd be doing things with orchestra and top session guys from London, which was brilliant. It worked out great. But Elton always wanted to do like, I want to do like a band, a real small band. And that's what he got. And um, so him and I and, and Nigel and Dee um, made all these great albums from 72 to, to you know, 75. They were just really the classic core of, of Elton's work, I feel. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high as a kite by then. I miss the earth so much. I miss my wife. It's lonely out in space on such a time. Timeless flight And I think it's gonna be a long, long time The touchdown brings me round again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home
And that's what, to my mind, lifted Elton or helped lift him. I mean, if you take Saturday Night, it's all right for fighting. That Your guitar on there, you hear that and you mentioned the kinks early. It's one of those riffs that is just now a standard. I know. It's, it's so it's so nice that that happens. Um, you know, I get kids coming up to me and, and you know, maybe Brit with a guitar and listen to this, I can do it. You know, and, and that's so great to hear, you know, the fact that you've maybe touched people in your career. And I'm very grateful for the chance to to have that experience of of having so many people hear what I've been able to bring to Alan's music and to my own music and to other people. I've been, I've played with so many people again i've been really fortunate really blessed to have people ask me invite me to play on their records and stuff and that's been fantastic um, and um yeah it's, it's really interesting because again to me the song is always the thing that comes first in a piece well if it is a song um so i always try and embellish the song with really cool guitar lines and guitar parts so that you're attracted to the song immediately um i'm a, I'm a great believer in in hooks, you know, and and uh, I've been very fortunate to come up with quite a few hooks, and like on Rocket Man, you know, doing the the, the slide part that it goes up to the stratosphere when he sings Rocket Man on the record and things like that. So yeah, I've been I've been very fortunate to have such a long career where I've been able to to you know dip into my bag of of cultural instruments and and different you know, like Irish, Scottish, English, uh, whatever it might be, uh, American blues, jazz. And and, um, and now with my own record, I dipped into um, South American music with uh, Mew Amor, which is um, based on Brazilian bossa nova guitar, which is not, e- it's not, it's not an easy thing to, to develop, but I'm so glad I sat down and, and worked out kind of how to do that style. Your songwriting is underappreciated as well. Uh, there's gems like Cage the Songbird. Mm. Do you remember writing that song? Because that is one of the gems in, in Elton's catalogue and co-wrote it. I appreciate that. Thanks, Jason. Um, yeah, it, how that happened was really quite remarkable because we were sitting up in Caribou Ranch in Colorado where, and it was the middle of winter. And um, we were sitting around in, because we all had these separate log cabins and Elton and his manager and Gus had were sharing the biggest one of those, which was kind of our meeting room. So we were hanging out in there one night and I was playing this guitar piece that I just, you know, composed and I was just playing around with it. And Elton said, what is that? And I said, it's just something I wrote. And he was like, that's beautiful. And he said, play it again. So I, I was playing it again. I was playing the piece and he was going through all these lyrics, a pile of lyrics that Bernie had given him. And he obviously knew what he was looking for. And he pulled this one out and he said, okay, I found it. He said, play it again from the beginning. And I played it and he started singing and it fit like perfectly. Well, Elvin's really good at phrasing. He's amazing at, at phrasing things. Um, and he just, it, the whole thing just fit perfectly. And um, the idea of, of the song 
uh, being about Edith Piaf, the, the famous yeah. brain singer who's such a tragic uh, end, you know, but it just fit perfectly. And um, so we kept the piece and, and we decided to keep it for the double album, Blue Moves, which we did um, pro- pro- about a year after that, after writing it. But, you know, we also, in that same period, we wrote Grow Some Funk of Your Own, which was a real balls out rocker, which was on, um, which album was that? Rock of the Westies, that's right. Yeah. And, um, and that was fun. I've always enjoyed writing with Elton. We've written quite a few things together and we've had, you know, a lot of success doing it. Uh, the biggest one being being um, blues, I guess. I guess that's why yeah. they call it the blues. It's been obviously a massive song and it's a big favourite with a lot of the fans too. Sober in the morning light Things look so much different to how they looked last night. A pale face pressed to an unmade bed, like flags of many nations flying high above her head. The cellophane still on the flowers, the telegram still in her hand. Whispers circulate all day The backstage baby princess passed away And you can praise the songbird But you can make a sing And you can trap the free bird But you have to clip her wings Cause she'll soar like a hawk when she flies, but she'll die like an eagle When she dies Promises of no more lies Fell flat upon an empty stage before the audience arrived. A return in time to the cheaper seats. She never knew what lay beneath. And just a dated handbill they found between the sheets. Let down before the final curtain. A shallow heart that left her cold. Left in rouge upon the mirror, a circle kiss. Oh, to the faithful fans who miss her. And you can praise the somber, but you can make her sing. You can trap the free bird, but you have to live her wings, cause she'll soar like a hawk. When she flies, but she'll die like an eagle When she dies 
I was reading something that Jim Steinman said before he sadly died mm. about working with him on uh, Bad for Good and the song Stark Raving Love and the words that he said about your dedication to getting the guitar sound and layering the guitars was the highest praise indeed. What was it like working with him? I mean, a, another legendary figure. Yeah, yeah, it, it was really great because, uh, see, again, I'm so fortunate because when I get hired to play on somebody else's music, they hire me not to play the notes that they want to hear, want me to play, but they, they hire me because of what I might bring to the song or to the piece that they're doing. So I kind of get free hand. So Jim would play me a song that he'd just written on piano and he would sit play. And he was very kind of, um, what's the word, very kind of operatic in his approach to writing. Yeah. It was very rock opera, very kind of grandiose and, you know, and all that cool stuff. And uh, so he would say, just go for it. And sometimes what I would do, I was very into acoustic guitar in rock because I think there's nothing that drives a track better than a really aggressive acoustic guitar part. And that's something that Pete Townsend and I kind of share. And we've done that together on a couple of tracks and Pete's brilliant. And Jim loved that fact that I would do that kind of thing. And, and uh, we were working at that time with Jimmy Ivey, right. who's another one who loved to experiment with different guitar things. So they kind of let me go with it. They kind of say, just do what you want to do. So I had a lot of fun. Um, working on those records and um, yeah it, it's been it's been amazing getting to do that and working with such kind of rated people like Stevie Nicks was a very yeah. a great um, album that I did and that's that came from the Jim Steinman oh. directly project because um, Jimmy Iovine was producing all that stuff and when he went to do Stevie's Belladonna album he asked me to do the guitars uh, with Waddy Wattel and 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 that made a great combination, me and Waddy and, and Russ Conkle on drums and um, Bob Glob and bass. And it was that classic California kind of thing. And me being of the odd man out, obviously being Scottish, hmm. you know, I've, I've been I've become a born again American, as it were, because I've lived here since the mid 80s. Stop raving! 
I don't think any chat with you would be remiss without mentioning the, the 3,000 shows that you've had with Elton. And maybe that, that that's one of the ways that your work in terms of arrangements and obviously your guitar as well comes alive. And there's songs like Funeral for a Friend, Love Lies Bleeding that have become a tour de force live and, and especially in terms of your role in that. Yeah, that's, that's always a... I mean, I think every time we play, every single time. I mean, there have been a couple of times where we had funny accidents, but... For example, on the farewell tour, we do it at a very pivotal point in the show, like right in the middle of the show. And, you know, everything goes, you know, completely dark. And there's, we have a thunder and lightning storm going on with lightning flashes and stuff. And then we slowly go into funeral for a friend. And it still gives me chills. I still get goosebumps when I'm just waiting to come in because it just reminds me of what it was like when we recorded it. Because when we actually recorded it for Yellow Brick Road, we recorded both those pieces in one one go. We didn't do two and then stitch all together. We did the whole thing from the start and went all the way through funeral into Love Lies Bleeding and, and all the way to the end. So it was quite something when we the way we recorded it. And so I always get those those chills when we're doing it live now. And um, I will tell you there was a very funny accident happened um sometime in I think in the 80s when we did it in Madison Square Garden. And our sound man uh, is a great geezer called Clive Franks. At that time, Clive Franks was the sound guy. Uh, he retired about 13 years ago. But we were playing, we were getting ready to do Funeral for a Friend. And in those days, this, the place went black as usual, but we had to use a CD to start because in those days, you know, we didn't have the, the we didn't have Guy Babylon to play them or Kim, Kim Bullard. We had to use a tape to start the synthesizer part at the beginning. So Clive would start it with the synth part. But what happened was he put the wrong CD in. And so <laughs> it's dead quiet, really, really quiet. And then out of nowhere, full volume, you hear, you say yes. Beatles <laughs> tape in there. And instantly the people, you know, me and Elton and Dee were dying on stage. We were trying so hard not to laugh. And we couldn't. We were just falling all over the place. So it was one of those great, um, spinal tap moments, you know, but they haven't happened too many times in our career. There's been a, there's been a few things like that, but I'm I'm kind of saving them for the book. I'm, I'm writing a book for release in a couple of years' time. It's just been fabulous to to talk to you, Davey, and um, obviously just to finally to mention uh, deeper than my roots. What a fantastic solo album. I hope it isn't for here years before you next, because there's definitely more to come. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate it. Great talking to you, Jason. And um, give my love to everybody over there. I will do. All the best. Thank you, man. Bye.
Thanksgiving. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.